I've got 11 o'clock. Most, Most of, you of you probably, probably do, do as well. well. So, so. Why, don't, why we don't we get started? started. Let's, pray Let's pray again, again together. together. And, and, and we'll, we'll open, open the scriptures. scriptures. Father, Father, thank, thank you for, for the opportunity to listen, listen to your word. word. We're, We're grateful, grateful that you would, you would speak, speak to us. us. We would we ask, ask you to give us ears, ears to hear this, this morning, morning what you have, have to, say to say to us. Would you, would you inflame your word in our hearts? Would you move, move us by listening to your word this morning? morning? Would you take, take your word and plant it deep within, within us and, and use it to change us? We want, we want to be to different, different than we are, we are right now. now. We, want we want to grow. grow. We, want we want to be, to be thrilled by what, what you have to say, say to us. us. Would, you Would you move us, us to joy? joy? Would you, Would you move, move us to an, to an experiential level of satisfaction in you? And, and even, even beyond, beyond satisfaction to true, deep, deep and lasting joy. Everyone of us wants that. that. Everyone of us needs that. that. And so, and so would you, you fan, fan the flames through your word, word this morning? Thank, thank you for, you for these, these people who have gathered. gathered. Thank, thank you, you for those, those who might be watching or listening at home. Would you, would you work in all these various, various people? Thank, thank you that you, that you are powerful to do, to do just, just that, to provide, to provide exactly what each one of us needs in the different, different circumstances that we face, in the different, different homes and families that we represent. You, you have, have the ability to do things, things that, that no, no one else, else can do. And so would so you, would take, you take your word and make it effective and fruitful in us today? today. Thank, Thank you for this time that we have together. Would you help, you help us, us to use it, use it well? well. Help, help us, us to listen faithfully and diligently and seek to respond appropriately to what you have to say this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So open... With, with a question, question to you, what, what makes, makes you happy? happy? What, makes what makes you happy? Does your, your spouse, spouse make, make you happy? happy? Do your, your children, children make, make you happy? happy? Does, Does Jesus, Jesus make, make you happy? Does the church, church make, make you happy? happy? Does, your Does your home make, make you happy? Does your dog make you happy? Does your, does your bank, bank account, account make you happy? happy? Does your does job, job make you happy? Or does retirement make you happy? Or the hope for it someday? What makes you happy? Inventory yourself and think about the things that actually put a smile on your face. What kinds of things would those be? And I hope all of those things that I mentioned can do that for you in the right ways. But we want to think very carefully about what does make us happy because we can, we can be happy about the wrong things. We can be satisfied with the wrong things that take our eyes and take our attention off of what truly can make us lastingly happy. And I'm using the word happy on purpose. Some of us might want to make a distinction, a strong distinction between joy and happiness as though joy is this spiritual thing and happiness is just this fleshly, worldly thing that we really don't care about very much. But I don't think that's a right way to think about happiness and joy. I think they overlap significantly. There is a distinction that we could maintain. You can experience joy even when you don't feel it, even when the feeling that we would call happiness is absent because your circumstances are hard, because there's loss in your life because there's genuine suffering or pain that you faced, 
or confusion or bewilderment about the circumstances that you're in. Those things can make you unhappy. And yet, even in those times when you don't feel happy, joy can be present. So they're not the same thing. But I would suggest to you that genuine joy includes a feeling, at least sometimes. And ultimately, when we look forward to the day, when we do experience a full measure of joy that will never be tempered or pulled back or in some half measure, it will include the feeling that we call happiness. And so genuine, true joy, the joy that's offered to us in the Scriptures, the joy that Jesus offers to us includes an aspect at least of feeling. We ought to feel happy, at least sometimes. As a believer, as a follower of Jesus, we have access to joy that goes from the depths of our being and floods out into our bodily emotions and feelings even. And that's what we want to look at today. The psalm that we're looking at, Psalm 16, is very much a psalm that pushes us into an experience of true biblical joy. And so we want to know, what does that look like? We're going to be reading this psalm, Psalm 16, that is a psalm that David wrote. We don't know when he wrote it. We don't know what his situation was, but we know the man David. We know enough about his life that it wasn't hunky-dory easy all the time. He was often threatened. He was often pressured. He was often tempted. And he often sinned and failed and struggled and had the worst things of life. He lost children. He lost people that he cared about. And he sinned grievously. And yet, he was a man who had found a secret to experiencing real, lasting joy. And what one of us doesn't want more of that in our lives? And so that's where we're going to head, and that's what we're going to try to get our head around a little bit. Let me read Psalm 16 again and open this up a little bit to us with the time that we have together. Psalm 16, a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Yahweh is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless Yahweh who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set Yahweh always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Shaul or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. A beloved psalm, probably for many of you. Let's open it up and see what David is saying here. 
verses 1 and 2, we see David trusting God for protection, which might imply that this is one of those many occasions when he was facing some difficulty in his life, being threatened by opponents, enemies, or what have you. But the heading tells us something, something not so important and something really important. The heading says that this is a miktam. I don't know what that is. Nobody knows what that is. It's just a Hebrew word that probably tells us about the musical genre or the type of song that it is, but we don't know what that means. So that's all we need to say about that. But the other piece of information it gives us is important. David wrote this. These are David's words, and the New Testament writers make much of this, and we'll come back to that in just a bit. But this is David's psalm. And it is a prayer. Much of it is reflecting about his situation and his relationship to God, but it is couched in the language of talking to God. He opens with this plea, preserve me, protect me, keep me safe, O God, guard me. And he says, the reason I'm praying this, the reason I have, conf- I have confidence that you can do this and that you will do this is because I take refuge in you. He sees God himself as his safety, his security, the place that he can go to be safe and secure no matter what he faces in life. He is truly safe because he sees God as his safe place, his haven, his refuge. And so he goes to God instead of other things. There are a lot of things that we could turn to in our lives that make us feel safe, make us feel comfortable, make us feel like everything's going to be okay, whether that be a full bank account, a successful career, a happy family that there's no conflict in, or what have you. But truly, truly, the only person in the universe who can keep you ultimately safe is God Himself, There is no other refuge that is ultimately safe for you. All other refuges that we might turn to will fail. Your bank account will empty at some point. Your career may fail. Your relationships may break down. These things are not ultimately secure, but you can always count on God to be secure. And even when these other things are are failing, even when these other things are breaking down, God is still committed to protecting his people. And so David can pray this way, and you and I can pray this way, because God himself has committed to keep us safe, to protect us. And so David prays that way, and he rests in God. He takes refuge in God himself. No matter what his circumstances look like, he finds his security in God alone. And here's why. Verse 2, I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. That's important, that he sees God as his master. He is here affirming and celebrating the lordship of God over his life. That's not something that he questions. That's not something that he finds as a, a, an inconvenience in his life. That somebody else, this God particularly, owns him and has the right to do with his life whatever he wants. He sees that as a comfort. Do you? Do you revel in the reality that Jesus is your Lord, your master, that he has sovereign right over your life? Is that something that you rejoice in? Is that something that you're glad about? Or is it something that you don't really believe? Or is it something that you wish wasn't true? Something that frustrates you or confuses you? I assure you, affirming that reality that Jesus is your master, Jesus is your king, Jesus is your Lord, 
is the key to reaching true joy. To see Him as sovereign over your life sets you free from so much of the frustration and confusion that we experience in this world. David got it. David revels in this reality that God, Yahweh, this God is his master, his owner, his Lord, his sovereign. I have no good apart from you. Do you feel that? Is that the reality you live in? Do you recognize that truth that whatever is rightly called good in your life, whatever is rightly called good in this world must come from God? It can't come from anywhere else. Nothing that comes to you that is truly good comes apart from God, apart from Jesus, ultimately. Everything that is rightly called good in this world comes from the only good God. He's the only place it can come from. And so we need to feel that weight of that, that whatever good I'm looking for, whatever good I'm hoping for, whatever good I feel like I might be missing, where are you going to find it? Only in Jesus, only in this God. He is the one who provides the goodness that you and I need and that you and I long for. He's the key. He is the only one who can give you the good that you hope for, wish for, and ultimately need. And the beauty of it all is he doesn't hold back from his children. He gives good to his children. He is a good, good father. And so David starts there, trusting God for protection, acknowledging that the only way he's going to experience good, even when things in his life look so bad, is if God does something and if God would show up and help him. In verses 3 and 4, he turns to delighting in God's people. Verse 3, he says, As for the saints in the land, So he turns his attention to the saints, the holy people in Israel. Think in David's sandals for a moment. He's thinking, he's recognizing the reality that in Israel, there are saints and there are rebellious, unbelieving sinners. In fact, the majority of the people of Israel throughout David's life and throughout their history were on the other side, the rebellious, sinful, unbelieving people. The idolaters that he contrasts them with in verse 4 are not pagans outside of Israel. They are people within Israel, people that are probably threatening him. Think about Saul and his people that would chase David and try to kill David. They were rejecting the truth of God. They were rejecting the plan of God. And they were ultimately following other gods, whether it would be the gods that they created in their own selves, Saul seemed very much to want to do what he wanted to do apart from what God had said to do. And by doing that, he elevated himself to the position of God. And so David here turns to the saints, the holy people, the people that God had set apart for himself, even within the people of Israel. And he turns to them and he says, they're the excellent ones. They're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Can you take those words for yourself this morning? Can you look around this room even, or the rooms where you might be sitting watching this elsewhere? Can you look around at your brothers and sisters, the saints, 
the people whom God has made holy by setting them apart from the world and drawing them into His fellowship and into His family, can you look at them and delight in them? Do you truly delight in God's people? Or are you busy criticizing God's people? Are you busy finding fault with God's people around you? Are you too focused on the flaws in your brothers and sisters that you can't see them as a source of delight for you? One of the greatest blessings that God has provided for so many of His people during the past six months, when churches have been prohibited from gathering in various places and including here, one of the greatest blessings that I personally have experienced and I've seen it testified to all across the world is there's a longing to see each other and to be together. This delight, this verse took on new meaning for me during this season personally as my longing to be with you was stoked and increased. We all have a tendency when we're in the rhythm of normality to take for granted the good that God has provided just in the simple fact of being able to meet together. But for me and for many, one of the greatest things that God has done, and I would not take it back for anything, I would not trade in the last six months for anything, is that this delight has stirred up so that when I see your faces and I come into this place with you, I am thrilled in a way that I wasn't six months ago. There's a newness and a freshness. I hope you can see it. I hope you can feel it. Rather than spending all the time complaining and fighting against what's happened to us, see the good thing that God has been doing, stirring up His people to the proper place where we really should see each other and delight in each other. We are family. No matter what distance there may be physically, no matter how long these difficulties and obstacles prolong, our delight should be in each other. You know, it's, it's wrong. It's sinful for people to simply say, the only thing that matters in this life is my relationship with Jesus. It is wrong to isolate ourselves, to think that the only thing that matters is my relation, my personal relationship with God, individually and privately. Your relationship with God is never meant to be private or simply personal. It is personal, but it's more than that. It's public. We share our relationship with God with each other. We are family with God and with each other. We don't keep that apart from each other. It matters how I feel about you. It matters how you feel about me. It matters how we feel about each other. The scriptures are clear. We should delight in each other. And I see too much fighting and biting and devouring. Isn't that the language that Paul used to warn the Galatians? If you bite and devour each other, we don't want to be doing that. We want to get here where David was to delight in the saints, delight in God's people genuinely want to see each other. Don't look at each other and think, oh my gosh, i got to talk to that guy. But that's easy to do. Some people dread coming to church, gathering with other believers because they know they're going to see so-and-so. I hope you feel that, if that's you. 
You've got to turn that. There's an intentionality here. It's not just natural affection. You have to choose to delight in the people that frustrate you so much. That's all I'll say about that. I could say more, but I won't. The saints, we should delight in the saints. David then contrasts that with those who run after other gods, those who commit themselves to idolatry. And we can think that this is far distant from our experience in our world, but it's not. It's so not. We have a tendency to make gods. As fallen human beings, we have a tendency to make gods or to take the true God and to turn him into somebody we like better. To treat him as though he's a God that we can master and we can define and we can control. That too is idolatry. And David here distances himself from those who worship other gods. He distances himself, his, himself and he recognizes that they are under God's judgment. Idolatry is condemnable. And he says their sorrows will multiply. He borrows a term from the fall narrative in Genesis 3, a curse that God brought into this world as a judgment on the world for human sin and human rebellion included the multiplication of sorrows, particularly for women in the raising of children, but it's bigger than that. And here, David is suggesting that those who commit themselves to worship false gods of whatever form and whatever making, their sorrows under God's judgment will just multiply. They will not cease they will multiply. And so here he commits himself not to go their way. Their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out. I won't participate in their false worship in any way. I won't even take their names on my lips. He's so committed to staying away from idolatry that he refuses to even talk about the things that they worship, the ways that they distort the true God. Because these are most likely people within Israel. These are people who are part of the covenant people of God. And yet, just like at Mount Sinai with the golden calf, they had a tendency to take Yahweh, their God, and turn him into something else. To treat him like he's something else. To not approach him the way that he's called them and commanded them and invited them to approach him. And David says, I'll have none of that. I won't go down that road. So this is David's commitment here. He's talking to God. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go down that road. And we need to take that same kind of commitment that whatever happens, whatever pressures we face, whatever temptations we face, we're not going to abandon our loyalty to Jesus. That must be our central commitment. No matter what we face, we will not abandon our loyalty to Jesus. No matter who else does, and no matter what we face in this world. He turns from talking about God's people and his delight in them, verses 5 and 6, to enjoying his inheritance. Enjoying his inheritance. Verses 5 and 6. Let me just read them again. Yahweh is my chosen portion, the, the portion that has been allotted to me, and my cup, you, You, Yahweh, hold my lot or my allotment of territory. The lines, the measuring lines have fallen for me in pleasant places and I have a beautiful inheritance. David here has been reading his Bible. 
He has been reading his Bible and he's been reading the book of Joshua. And he's reading about how the inheritance was allotted, the territory was allotted to the people of God. Joshua laid out the tribal allotments to the 12 tribes of Israel. And a part of that would have been either drawing lines on a map or, and or, actually laying out ropes to define the boundaries between the tribal allotments. David here has been reading that and he recognizes what we all should recognize when we read that story in the context of the book of Genesis. So read Genesis through Joshua and even into Judges. And what David recognizes is that that allotment of physical territory in the Middle East was a pointer to something bigger. His inheritance is not just about a little plot of land in the Middle East. It never was. David is of the tribe of Judah, right? His territory has been marked out and aligned for him. And yet here he says, Yahweh is my portion and my cup. Yahweh is my allotment. Yahweh is my inheritance. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like the tribe of Levi, who didn't get any territory, physical territory in the Middle East, in the Middle East, in Israel, in the land of Canaan. They didn't get any physical land. Instead, God himself was to be their inheritance. Let me remind you of those words, Numbers 18:20. Yahweh said to Aaron, "You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them." I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. And then the next few verses extend that off to Aaron's descendants, the Levites. Yahweh was to be the priestly portion instead of a plot of a specific plot of land in the Middle East. David aligns himself with the Levites, even though he's not a Levite. He recognizes that the inheritance that was promised all the way back to the promises to Abraham and his offspring was never just about that little plot of land that gets divided up into tribal territories. It was always pointing to something bigger, something that involved more importantly a personal, intimate relationship with God himself. And David says, that's mine. That's mine. The land is irrelevant for my relationship with God. It's all about my relationship with you as a people, as a part of the people of God. And guess what? You and I can do the same thing that David here does. And we should. The New Testament is clear about this, about our inheritance and what that is. And as David sits here, he's talking about an inheritance. An inheritance is something that's coming to you later on. It's something that's promised to you. But you don't have it quite yet. And David doesn't experience the intimacy with God that he will someday. And so he's looking forward here. He's talking about an inheritance that is to come. And that's the truth that we face as well. And so when we think about our inheritance, we could go to 1 Peter and read Peter's words, where Peter tells us, 1 Peter 1.4, that God has caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What is this inheritance currently stored and protected for us in heaven? It is God himself and our relationship with God as his children 
and the new creation. The whole thing. After John got a visionary glimpse of the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, he quotes God as saying in Revelation 21.7, I'm reading from the 2011 edition of the NIV here, those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Can you enjoy your inheritance now before you take possession of it? Why do you think you've been told so much about it in the Bible? To fuel your anticipatory joy. You are an heir. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are an heir. An heir of all that God has promised. Not only to Abraham and his offspring, but also all the promises of God. You are an heir. And nothing you do... Nothing you say, nothing you fail to do or fail to say can change that. You are an heir. God has prepared and is preserving for you in heaven, even now, an inheritance. And you will enjoy its reality forever and ever, guaranteed. No question about it. You have been made a co-heir with Jesus. That's why this works, because you have been adopted as a child of God. As an adopted son, even you ladies are considered adopted sons, meaning you have full inheritance rights. But it's not just you by yourself, it's that you are a co-heir with Jesus, who is the true Son of God, the eternal Son of God. He has been made the heir of all things. Guess what? He shares His inheritance with you, with all of us. And so what He inherits, we inherit. The new creation is what we're looking forward to. And it's guaranteed that we're going to get there and we're going to enjoy the fullness of it. David gets a glimpse of that even here. And he is reveling in God as his inheritance. He turns in verses 7 and 8 to praise God for his stabilizing guidance along the way. His stabilizing guidance. I bless or praise Yahweh who gives me counsel. The word for bless here is simply a word that means to speak well of someone. And so the idea is very much praise. I will praise Yahweh who gives me counsel. So he recognizes that in the midst of his difficulties, in the midst of his life, in the, midst of the, in the midst of the uncertainties and the challenges and the opposition that he faces, God is leading him. God is guiding him. And the confidence there is the confidence that God is going to get him where he wants him to be. That's what God's leadership is all about. It's taking you from where you are to where you need to be. And you can have absolute certainty, Christian, that he will take you where you need to be. He always gets you where he wants you to go. You can't stop him. You can't trip him up and nobody else can either. He's going to get you to the finish line. We might take a squirrely path along the way. There will be ups and downs, twists and turns, and sometimes we'll fall down in the ditch. That doesn't mean he's left us. That doesn't mean he's not walking right alongside us. He is. And the guarantee is that we don't 
We shouldn't lose hope in those moments. We just get up, dust ourselves off, and keep moving forward. Because God's going to get you there. God's going to keep you moving in the right direction, on the right path, to the right destination. Guaranteed. If you're one of His children, that's His promise to you. That's His unovercomable promise. He won't go back on it, and no one can make it come untrue. So trust Him for it. David's trusting Him for it and praising Him for this guidance. He puts a different spin on the guidance in the second line of verse 7. In the night also my heart instructs me. Now the word for heart there is not the blood-pumping organ in our chest. Instead, it's the word for kidneys. Kidneys. Now, kidneys in the West, in America, in modern day, doesn't have a metaphorical significance to us. We don't, when we talk about kidneys, we're always talking about kidneys and what they do and how they fail and what's wrong with them. (laughs) That's when we talk about kidneys. But in the ancient world and in the Bible, when they had a metaphorical significance for kidneys. We have a metaphorical significance for heart. We have a metaphorical significance for guts. But we don't for kidneys. But when they spoke of the kidneys in the Old Testament, 15, 20 times, something like that, our Bibles usually translate it heart. And they're trying to get across to us, what, what are we talking about? The kidneys, if you think about it as an organ, it's kind of hidden. They're, they're kind of hidden inside the body. And they knew that in the ancient world. And so what they said is the kidneys represent the most hidden secret place of a person's identity. And from that comes some particular uh, inferences. But the kidneys are like the deepest passions of a person, typically. But they also come to mean the conscience. They don't have an abstract word for conscience the way we do. And I think that's specifically what David's got in mind here is the conscience. Kidneys as a reference to the conscience. In the night also, my conscience instructs me, teaches me, disciplines me, guides me. And so David here reflects on the reality that God uses our conscience to guide us. God uses our conscience to move us to repentance. God uses our conscience, which is the faculty of our identity that tells us when we're doing something wrong. Now, our conscience, even as a Christian, is not perfect. Sometimes it tells us we're doing wrong when we really haven't. And sometimes it doesn't tell us we're doing wrong when we really have. And even as a Christian, with the Spirit living inside of us, the conscience has not been perfected. So we have to be careful with our consciences. But the encouragement here is that we wouldn't shut them out, that we would listen to our kidneys or our conscience. We would listen to, we would respond to our conscience because it may be, and this takes discernment, it may be that God is using our conscience to show us when we've done something wrong and to guide us back into the truth. The word for instruct here is actually the word for discipline in the Hebrew. Discipline. So think about discipline. It's got this positive side of training to get stronger and do the right thing, but it's also got the negative side of correction when you're doing the wrong thing. And so those pangs of conscience, we dare not ignore them, right? The Apostle Paul speaks of the danger of a seared conscience, a conscience that's been ignored to the extent that we don't hear it speaking at all. And that's a bad place 
for a person to be. And David is acknowledging the reality that even at night, and particularly at night, think about that. One writer summarized, why the night? Why is that important here? In the quietness of the night, without the distractions of the, of the world, the voice of conscience speaks louder and clearer. Some of you probably experienced this. You lay down in bed and your spouse has gone to sleep and you're sitting there rehearsing the day in your mind and you're feeling maybe bad about something you failed to do or something stupid you said or something bad that you did. I'm not alone in that, am I? Isn't that a common experience? Doesn't it just happen to me? That's your conscience. And at night, the TV's off. The lights are off, the outside influences, it's quiet, generally. That pang of conscience, you shouldn't just try to shut it off and go to sleep and ignore it. It's an opportunity to deal with something that might actually be wrong. Now, for so many of us, that's not the way it is. We go to bed and smartphones in front of our face, we're watching YouTube videos, we're looking at Pinterest, and that is in my house. Uh, and, and we're not taking that time for quiet reflection. And oftentimes we've got so much noise coming in that we can't hear what's going on, whether outside of us or inside of us even. We need to be careful about that. We can so numb our senses that we fail to see how God is moving us toward repentance where we need to repent as believers in Jesus. And David is saying... I don't do that. I recognize God uses those moments, and I'm not going to miss the opportunity. Verse 8, I have set Yahweh always before me. So his commitment here, and this should be the commitment of your life and mine, is to put God always before you. What does that mean? Well, think about it physically. He says, I put God in front of my face all the time. So what he's saying is, I don't look at anything in this world without looking at God. God becomes the lens through which I interpret the world and my experiences and not the other way around. And I'm convinced that our default tendency as as human beings is to do it the other way around. We have experience and our experience becomes the grid through which we interpret everything else. We interpret new experiences and the biggest problem is that we have these experiences, we interpret those experiences And then we use that to interpret God and His work in our lives. And that is exactly backwards. David says, God is before my face so that when I look at anything in the world, my perspective is so God-shaped that He is like a pair of glasses that I put on so that when I look at anything, I look through those lenses and it shapes how I understand what I'm looking at. And that's what we should do. How do we do that practically? You take this book. This is how you see God first and foremost. There are other ways. But this book is how God shows himself to us. You want to see more of God? You look here. And as you keep this book before your eyes, you develop a grid, a mental interpretive grid, if you will, that enables you to interpret the world around you. And so many of the struggles that we have, so many of the reasons that we are frustrated with the world around us and we react to that with misplaced outrage or anger or rebellion or self-protective measures is because we don't look at the world through the lens of this book. 
And if we did, our responses would change. That's how they change. Our perspective must change first. And David says his commitment is, God's got to go right here. So he's the first thing I see and he shapes everything else I see. And we need to have that commitment as well. His confidence, again, is that because God is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. No matter how the world is falling apart around us, we don't have to be shaken. We don't have to be knocked over. We don't have to be toppled. The world is an unstable place. It's broken. It's fallen. It's under God's curse. It's going to be unstable until Jesus returns and fixes it finally and ultimately by radically renovating it into a brand new thing. Until that day, there's instability around us. But because we have Jesus, we don't have to be shaken with the world around us. We can be steady when the storms come. And it's all about where we place our faith, where we place our foundation. And David recognized that. The final section... David rejoices in his eternal security. Now, you may have already recognized that these last verses, verses 9 through 11, and verse 8 as well, are quoted in the book of Acts by the apostles. Peter and Paul both go to this passage to talk about Jesus and Jesus' resurrection specifically. And so the question is going to be perennially raised, did these verses have anything to do with David at all? Or did he slip into the mode of prophet in such a way that what he says in verses 8 through 11 has nothing to do with David, but only about Jesus. I don't think so, personally. And I'll try to show you what I think Peter and Paul saw here. But I think we have to start first with what David was wrestling with and what David was thinking about for his own experience first. And then we can see how it points to Jesus And then we can see how it belongs to us as well. So that's where we're going to go here to close out our time. So David writes, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being, my glory, rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Notice the two lines there. My heart, my glory, my whole being, and my flesh. So he's talking about body and soul. He's talking about his whole person here. He's talking about everything that I am. He's talking about a joy that starts deep within the core of who he is and it floods out into physical, bodily, verbal expression. He's talking about a joy that is deep and it doesn't stay deep. It floods out like oil bursting through the ground. And so his confidence here, his joy is rooted in his sense and his confidence that he's safe. Even though the world around him is shaking, he dwells secure. Why? Verse 10. He has this confidence. You will not abandon my soul to Sha'ol or let your Holy One see corruption. Note there in the two lines, you have the same thing going on. My soul... My life, my the life force that's animating me, if you will, the non-physical aspect of myself, perhaps, and then the corruption idea in the second line has to do with his body decaying. So he's talking about what happens to my soul, what happens to my body. Now, some of you will have seen uh, one of our devotional reflections lately, and we talked about some of these issues. David is raising here what's going to happen when I die. And his confidence here, you've got to look very carefully about how he says it. You will not abandon 
my soul to Sha'ol. And Sha'ol is the place where the soul of a dead person goes in the Old Testament period. All of the souls of dead people go to this place called Sha'ol. And so his, his confidence here is that God is not going to abandon his soul there. Now that is ambiguous. It could mean a couple of different things. It could mean I'm going to die and my soul is going to go to Sha'ol, but it won't stay there. You won't abandon my soul there. It could mean that. And so then in that case, he's just hoping for, he's hoping for resurrection ultimately. But it could mean that you're not going to let me die. Now, I don't think he means ever. David's not entertaining the idea of immortality here, that God's going to let him live forever. He didn't have any kind of sense of that. But it could be, as it often is in the Psalms, that he is poetically expressing his confidence that in this situation that I'm facing right now, you're not going to let me die. So if David's life was being threatened, as it so often was, he had to trust that, in, at least in this event, this is not the end. Maybe he had some indication of that from God. So that could be all he's saying. I'm going to leave that an open question for the moment. It could be all he's saying is that you're going to protect me from dying right now in this situation. Or, second line, let your holy one see corruption. Now that word for holy one is interesting. It's not the same word for saints that we saw earlier. This is a word, listen carefully, chasid. Chasid comes from the word chesed that we've talked about some, this idea of God's loving kindness, his steadfast love, his loyal love for his people. The chasid, then, is a person who is who has that. Either he's been the object of it, that he is the one God is loyal to, or it's the one who is loyal to God. Either way, you may have heard of, you may know Hasidic Jews today. They've labeled themselves with this term, Hasidic Jews. They're saying, we're the loyal Jews. We're the faithful Jews. So they use this term that way. And it's all about loyalty in a covenant relationship. And so David, initially, it seems like in the parallel, he's referring to himself as the one who is loyal to God or the one God has been loyal to, either way, however you want to see it. And he's saying, again, you're not going to let me see corruption. That is, you're not going to let my body decay in the grave. And that, again, could be viewed two ways. Either you're not going to let me die this time so that my body's not going to be put in the grave in this situation, or I'm going to die, but I'm not going to stay there very long. And you can start to see, okay, I can see how that makes sense with Jesus at least, but not with David. And so you start to see there's a layer of ambiguity. And what I would suggest to you is that is generally true with all prophecy. Old Testament prophecy The fulfillment when it comes, all of it, in Jesus' first coming and in the anticipation of Jesus' second coming, the fulfillment is always, almost always, bigger, better, grander, and very, very often, the fulfillment comes in the ambiguity of the way the prophecy was worded. You can ask me about that sometime if you want me to give you examples. I'm not going to here, but... I think that's part of probably what's going on. David had in mind this reality that God's going to protect him. That's the main thing David's thinking. But as the New Testament writers affirm, David is speaking as a prophet here, and that could mean that he's very consciously 
speaking in a way that says, okay, in one, in one sense, this is applicable to me, but in another greater sense, it's only applicable to my great descendant, the Messiah who will come. And then the New Testament writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recognize that and bring it out and make it clear. And so that could be part of what's going on here. David finally goes on in in verse 11, and he is confident, again, that God is making known to him or has made known to him or will make known to him the path of life, the way of life. And so he's, he's all about avoiding death here, whether either escaping it, like not experiencing it right now, or... He recognizes that death is not the end of the story for him. And so either way you view it, God has shown him the way to live, the way of life. And ultimately, there is a hint here of everlasting life in this picture. In your presence, literally with your face. I love that, and I think that's important to recognize. With your face, God, there is fullness of joy. That means where God is seen you can experience the fullness of joy. Where God is seen, where His face is seen, you can experience fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So forevermore, that's not just after you die, but it's now and forever. David's confidence here has got to be at some level for his own relationship with God now, during his life, before he dies. But it continues. He's confident that even if he dies and his soul goes to Sheol, that's not the end of the story. He's got some prophetic, spirit-inspired recognition that there's got to be more for a person who's in relationship with the eternal God. There's got to be more. And that might be all he's saying initially about his own experience. But if God's committed to protecting him now, then his confidence is God is committed to protect him forever. So that this experience of joy in life is something that goes on forever. Now let's look at what the apostles do here with these verses. First we turn to Acts 2. If you want to flip in your Bible, that would be good. Acts chapter 2 verses 24 to 32, to pick up some context. This is the day of Pentecost, that first great day of Pentecost after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. Peter's explaining what happened. You remember the 120 or so disciples, followers of Jesus, were in the upper room in a building in Jerusalem, and the Spirit was poured out upon them, and they began speaking in tongues, and the people of Jerusalem there that had been gathered together started freaking out and wondering what in the world is going on. Peter stands up to explain. And he goes to the second half of his explanation, if you will, here, picking up in Acts 2.24. God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. This is Psalm 16.8. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He leaves off the last line of Psalm 16. No idea if there's any significance to that. It is a large quote from Psalm 16 here that he applies to Jesus. And so then he turns to these 
people who are listening to him in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. So Peter quotes Psalm 16 to demonstrate that the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would rise from the dead. And since Jesus rose from the dead, he must be the Messiah. That's the logic that Peter's working with here. Now in verse 30, it's important to recognize Peter doesn't just interpret Psalm 16 by itself. He connects Psalm 16 with Psalm 132, verse 11. He connects the fulfillment of Psalm 132.11 with the fulfillment of Psalm 16.8-11. So he connects those two passages together. Psalm 132.11 says, Yahweh swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. So here's the significance of that according to one writer. To Peter, the prophecy of Psalm 132, which goes back to 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, is now fulfilled. God has indeed put one of David's descendants upon the throne from which Israel is ruled. As Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended to the throne at God's right hand, exercising his messianic authority in the distribution of the Holy Spirit upon his followers. So Jesus is the King, the Messiah, the Davidic descendant, and in his ascension to heaven and sitting at the right hand of God on the throne, he pours out the Holy Spirit. And that shows to everyone that he has taken the throne. That's the proof of it. Nobody can see the throne at the right hand of God from here. So how do you know it happened? The pouring out of the Holy Spirit on God's people is what shows that he is now sitting on the throne, ruling and reigning as prophesied in these verses. Resurrection was key. It had to happen. So Peter sees Psalm 16, verse 10, and and recognizes that it means that the Messiah would go down, his soul, his spirit, would go down to Sheol, or Hades is the Greek term. He would go down, his soul would go down there, but it wouldn't stay there very long. So that it would be reunited with his body... On the third day, when he rose from the dead, so that he experiences resurrection, so that he can then sit on the throne that was appointed for him at the right hand of God. That's what Peter sees. Turn to Acts 13 and see how Paul uses the same passage from Psalm 16. According to Acts 13, 16, just to pick up some of the context, Paul's addressing men of Israel and you who fear God in the synagogue of Pisidian Antioch, which is in the province of Galatia, So Paul's audience includes Jews and Gentiles who had converted to Judaism. That's important to remember. Acts 13, 32 to 37. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. And he quotes Isaiah 55, 3 here. I, Yahweh, will give you the restored remnant of Israel 
the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So Paul quotes Psalm 16 in between Psalm 2 and Isaiah 55, 3 to demonstrate that Jesus fulfills the promises to David in the Davidic covenant, specifically that a Davidic king would reign forever as the Son of God. Since Jesus has risen from the dead, conquered death, and begun His eternal reign, then He has begun fulfilling the Davidic covenant by ruling over the restored remnant of Israel, which includes all Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus from the throne at the right hand of God. That's the great picture here. That's the key to everything. The fulfillment of all the prophecies, all the promises in Scripture happen in Jesus, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. All of the promises are, yes, in Him. So that means all those who are in Him become the recipients of all the promises of God. We are the heirs. And so that means that we can now take Psalm 16 rightfully in our own hands and in our own words, and we too... We too can sing with David about this everlasting joy. And even beyond singing these words and taking them as our own, we can experience them in our day-to-day lives. Let's consider the abundant, joyful life that Jesus offers both now and forever. Let me quote a pastor from Oklahoma, Pastor Sam Storms. He says this, listen carefully, Everything without God... Everything without God is pathetically inferior to God without everything. Another pastor raises these questions, and I direct these to you for your consideration. If God gave you health but didn't give you himself, would you be satisfied? If God gave you a nice home, nice vacations, and plenty of money but did not give you himself, would you be satisfied? If you went to heaven and the streets were solid gold, the air was clean and bright, there was no more sin, everyone got along without fighting, arguing, or conflict. But Jesus was not there. Would you be satisfied? I hope you answer no to all of those questions. What did Jesus offer to us? John 10.10, I came that they, my sheep, may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus doesn't offer a little bit of life here and there. Jesus doesn't offer a partial life. He offers abundant life. And he offers it for the here and now. This is not just a promise of what happens after you die. This is a promise for the sheep's experience in this world. How do we know that? David said that God made known to him the path of life Well, Jesus has made known to us the path of life, and it's himself, right? John 14, 6. I am the way, the path, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What that tells us is that true happiness, true joy, can be found nowhere but in Jesus. He is the only way to experience joy, true joy, lasting joy, that can never be taken away. Folks, It's not true that anybody can steal your joy. 
Nobody and nothing can steal your joy. You know what happens? We give it away. We hand it over. We give it up. We don't cherish the joy that Jesus provides in a way that says, I'm not going to let go even if my body falls to pieces and the world around me goes to pot. I will not let go of Jesus and the joy that he provides right now. How do we do that? 2 Corinthians 4 might give us the key, and it goes back to David. I set the Lord always before my face. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, In their case, those who are perishing, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then in verse 6, he says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What does that tell us? You want to experience, experience the joy that Jesus offers? Look at Him. Look at Him. Look in this book. Not just the Gospels, not just the Epistles, the whole thing. Genesis to Revelation. Look for Jesus. When you see His glory being proclaimed in Song of Solomon. When you see His glory being proclaimed in the book of Proverbs. When you see His glory being described in the book of Exodus. That is the key to experiencing joy. I hope you never give up that pursuit. Never give it up. You read this book from Genesis to Revelation, every word, everything in between, and you look for Jesus. I'm convinced that is the key to experiencing in our everyday lives the joy that is, seems so fleeting to us. Look for Him. You will see new things. One of the greatest experiences I've had in the last couple of weeks is looking in some of these places that we don't often look and finding Jesus there where I didn't see Him before. And that fresh vision changes me. It brings me out of my malaise. My wife can tell you when I don't take the time to read this book at night before we go to bed, I'm a lump of stupid I'm mellow, and I'm down. And when I do, it's different. I'm different, and you can be too. I know for some of you, and I'll wrap up, I'm rambling now. I know for some of you, opening up the book of Leviticus might be the most terrifying thing that you could be challenged to do. Or the book of Numbers, or those first nine chapters of First Chronicles, where you're reading names that you can hardly pronounce, you don't have a clue what's going on. And I get that. I do. Keep doing it anyway. And ask the question, where is Jesus in all of this? And don't give up until you find him. You don't have to stay in First Chronicles 1 to 9. You can, you can come back to it later. But do come back to it later. And don't read it by yourself. I've said this before. I'll keep saying this till I can't breathe anymore. You need to read the Bible in community. It's not about you and your personal relationship with Jesus. Me, my Bible, and my closet is not the way God designed it. He wants us to read together. He wants us to understand this book together. You, you can see things in this book that I can't see. 
We need to hear from each other so that we can show each other what Jesus is like. And we want to see him here above all. Because this is where he's presented to us in all his purity, in all his glory, and in all his wonder. And I'm, I'm just convinced to the bottom of my toes that this is where true joy is found. No matter what happens in my life, no matter what happens in my world, this can change my perspective and my experience. And I hope you find that to be true for yourselves. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for these glorious promises that teach us about our Savior, that teach us about ourself and our need for Him, teach us about the world around us and what's wrong with it. Thank you that you would show us yourself in these words printed on pages, translated into our own language. We want to see you more clearly, Lord. And we want to experience the joy that you do offer. We want to experience it. We want to feel it. We want to be happy. And you've told us the way. You've told us the key. So help us to draw joy from you. Joy produced by the Holy Spirit as one of his great fruits. Help us to experience it. Help us to live it. Help us to encourage it in each other. Help us to turn each other's attention to the good that you're doing in the world and in our lives. And help us to abandon the pursuit of the darkness around us, seeking to either overcome it ourselves or to even understand it without your perspective, without your lenses, and without your power to do something about it. Thank you that you've told us the end of the story and we can hope most fully in our Savior's return to wrap this thing up called human history and to bring in a new creation. Help us to enjoy our anticipation of that day by day. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.